What's up, everybody? This is the Pre-Professional Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Kraft, with host Colton Watching. Today, we have a special guest, um, our first official professional actually acting in a professional role. Uh, his name is Nate Wadley, and he's the Director of Sports Performance at Optimum Performance Sports here in Warsaw, Indiana, and he is also the Head Strength and Conditioning Coach here at Grace College. So, Nate, how are we doing? I'm doing well. Appreciate you guys having me on. Looking forward to chatting for a little bit, and uh, yeah, just thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're really looking forward to this. Um, we've obviously had some people on the podcast, um, Victor, who is going into school, Brady, who just graduated school, and so we're excited to have somebody who's been in the field for a little bit longer than those guys. Obviously, you've been practicing. You've gotten up to the college strength and conditioning. I mean, you're the director of sports performance at a relatively large institute, especially here in the, kind of the northeast Indiana corner. So just kind of start talking about um, how you got your start in strength and conditioning, like what got you going, what started your fire for it, and then uh, talk a little bit about schooling and then how you got to where you're at now. Sure. Yeah, so I'll, uh, I'll start way back when I was 16 years old in high school. Um, that was my first exposure to, to lifting on a regular basis. Um, I grew up in Illinois, um, but my high school had a PE class called Advanced PE, and it was for athletes only. And that was you lifted Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Tuesday, Thursday, you did speed and agility stuff all throughout the year. And when I came into my junior year, I was playing three sports, played soccer, basketball, and baseball, and I weighed about 165 pounds. And by the end of that year, after lifting for the whole year, I weighed 185. Now, obviously, you know, 16 years old, there's some physical maturation that takes place um, during that age group. But um, I firmly believe that being in the weight room was what allowed me to play three varsity sports in high school and then also play soccer for four years in college. Um, so to be able to play at that next level and understanding, you know, how the weight room benefited me and how that helped me change my game and how I looked and how, who I was able to compete against. Um, I just, I loved that and I loved the process of that. So being able to help other athletes through that and help them understand how the weight room can, can help them and, and take them to new levels was something that really interested me. And so from there, went to Anderson University, um, which is just about an hour and 40 minutes south of here and played soccer for four years, studied exercise science and minored in nutrition. And it was kind of interesting because, I mean, you guys understand here at Grace, you know, when you're in that small Christian school environment, you know, there's nothing specific to strength and conditioning. It's all exercise science. And then you kind of branch off from there. So when I was at Anderson, I had, you know, athletic trainers, people who wanted to go into physical therapy, um, occupational therapy, um, strength and conditioning, personal training. We were all in the same classes. So there really wasn't anything specific. Um, and again, to be in the field, it's kind of understood you need a master's degree. But that was really fun to kind of hone in on exactly what I wanted to do when looking for master's programs. And graduated from Anderson in 2016 and landed at Ball State, where they had a sport performance um, graduate assistantship that I got to be a part of. And that was easily two of my favorite years of schooling ever. Um, just being able, so the way the program was set up was basically for the first month you were an intern and you kind of watched the second years in the program as they were heading up the strength and conditioning responsibilities for the athletic teams. And then at semester, the second years kind of stepped back, focused on job applications and things like that. And the first years took over. So you were basically for a full calendar year, you were the head strength and conditioning coach for um, athletic teams at Ball State. So it's interesting, you know, when you're 
fresh out of undergrad, you know, I was 21, 22 years old, and then I'm put in charge of Division One athletes a semester later, basically. Um, it was definitely an invaluable experience. Uh, Coach Jason Roberson, he's still there, as well as um, the assistant, Mandy Harrison. They were great at really being hands-off and just letting us find our way. And so for two, well, I guess one whole calendar year, about a year and a half, I was a head strength and conditioning coach for men's and women's diving, uh, women's soccer, and women's swimming. So I played soccer in college, so I was comfortable with that sport. But, um, you know, with diving and swimming and not really having a background in those, that was really cool to be able to work with those teams and, you know, the quote-unquote um, smaller sports, which isn't a term I like, but that's kind of how people refer to it. Um, but it was just fun to be with those kids who weren't necessarily, like, in the big time of, like, football and basketball and things like that, but just kind of see, you know, they're still going through that same grind every single day and putting in the same amount of hours um, and they're often up, especially those that were in the pool, um, you know, they were up earlier than just about everybody else. They would swim at five in the morning and then come lift with me at seven. And then they'd have practice again in the evening. So it just really gave me an appreciation for what every Division One athlete goes through, not just the ones that we see on TV. But that was a really good experience for two years. And then I got my first exposure to the uh, inconsistency of the field fresh out of grad school. Uh, I was unemployed for nine months. And so... I actually ended up interning at three different places. Um, I went to Marquette up in Milwaukee first, was there for the summer of 2018. Then I was at Western Michigan for two months um, between September and October, and then went to Notre Dame for November and December. And finally, uh, one of my friends from grad school, actually, Aaron Miller, he was in the position at OPS that I'm in now, and he got deployed on active duty. And he had asked me if I wanted to take his job. And initially, I had turned him down because I had just gotten into Notre Dame. I'm thinking, okay, this is Notre Dame. This is like, you know, the greatest thing in the world, kind of the pinnacle of strength and conditioning. And uh, so I turned him down in order to be a, an unpaid intern. And then he asked me again and uh, about a month later. And that's where I was kind of like, okay, I feel like God's kind of, you know, laying this out on a platter for me. And so I took the job, uh, thankfully. And... So this was February of, of 2019. Um, February 4th was my first day, actually. So we're coming up here on my uh, what will be the start of my fourth year. And when I started at OPS, we only had – I saw 10 kids my first week. Um, had like maybe one or two kids each session. And that summer, I had known I always wanted to work with college athletes. That was always my goal. That was what I was working towards. And so I knew Chad Briscoe, our AD here at um, Grace College – ever since I was born. Um, so he played basketball for my grandpa at Anderson, actually, and then coached with him for a couple of years. So I kind of reached out to him and just asked if there was anything I could do to help out with strength and conditioning. I didn't know what that looked like here at Grace. And uh, eventually, after a couple um, lunch meetings and meetings with my boss, uh, Grace and OPS developed a professional partnership to where Grace pays OPS for me to be their strength coach. And shoot, here I am. Yeah, like I said, about Three, four years later, um, I've got over 315 athletes all to myself now um, between Grace and OPS. OPS has grown to over 60 kids. Um, so it's been it's been a really good ride, um, but I will be the first to say that, that getting into the field, um, that there is no one way to do it. There's no cookie-cutter way, uh, but it, that's kind of what makes it so exciting is there's just a lot that can be up in the air, and you got to be able to to roll with it and just continue to find ways to, you know, get better and, and learn as you're trying to find that next step. Yeah. 
I like how you kind of like uh, talked a bit about how it's not kind of all sunshine and rainbow rainbows, right? Once you get out of school. I mean, I feel like a lot of people. Um, it's actually kind of funny because this was on my mind. So before I go work out, sometimes I'll listen to Matthew McConaughey's like uh, speech that he gave to those uh, college kids at a graduation. Oh yeah, and it kind of gets me going. He talks like the first thing he says is like, like don't fall into the entitlement trap. Like life is hard; it's always gonna be, never isn't gonna be. So just kind of get over it. Like if you think you're a victim, you're not. So obviously, like you were in that quote unquote victim role, nine months unemployed. That sucks. But obviously, you got through the nitty gritty, got through some internships, and now you're at where you're at. So that's super cool. Um, one of the questions I have was. I mean, I competed here at Grace for two years on the track team, and, um, you know, I mean, coming from a small Christian, like, 1A school, I mean, obviously, like, athleticism is completely different. So, what do you see, like, from Grace College, like, athletics, um, working in this kind of, like, D1 NAI sector versus, like, D1 NCAA sector? Like, what is, like, that difference in not only how the athletes perform, but how they respond to you and how they respect you. Yeah, I think it's interesting because so when I was at Marquette, um, now the only athletes that stayed as a team over the summer were volleyball, women's volleyball, that is, um, and men's and women's basketball. So once we got into the calendar school year, um, they were all three of those teams were top 15 in the country. And at one point in time, Marquette was the only school to have both men's and women's basketball ranked at the same time so you're getting these kids like we had marcus howard at the time who ended up being naismith player of the year got drafted by the denver Nuggets. so you know you're around these high caliber athletes and i will say at marquette every single one of those kids worked really really hard and sometimes you know i'd, I'd been at ball state and you see these kids who oh i'm division one you know i've got it made or you know i was always the best kid in high school so i don't really have to work that hard now and I think that you can find that anywhere. That's not just specific to Ball State. It's not specific to just Division I. Um, but I think the fun thing about my job here at Grace is you get these kids who have never set foot in a weight room before. And physically, they may be really good at their sport. They may be um, really dominant. And they may have been the best player on their high school team. And then you kind of get them in the weight room and you're like, holy cow, like I see you move as an athlete, like on the court or on the field or on the track. And then you have them try to do a basic movement pattern in the weight room, and it's like, oh, man, this is totally foreign to them. Um, so those challenges really make it fun for me because it just gives me the opportunity to really break things down and do my job and also get them comfortable with being in the weight room, being around me. And I think that it's easier to build that trust when you're kind of the first voice that they're hearing in that regard or in that environment. Um, and I think that's the approach I try to – take with the weight room is just making sure it's a, a fun environment somewhere where they want to come back to. Whereas when I was at Ball State, you know, especially as a grad assistant, they knew how it worked. And, you know, I'm a year or two older than the oldest kids on the team. So they're kind of trying to figure out what they can get away with and things like that. And part of that's just the situation you're in. Um, but they also know how it works and how the weight room works. So you're just kind of trying to make sure the room is working well and flowing and um, there is coaching to do. There is teaching, especially when you get those freshmen or you get a red shirt who, you know, you can push a little harder in season because they're not competing. Um, but it's definitely a different environment, again, because it's not so new to those kids because more often than, than not, they're going to be coming from your big, 
you know, depending on how many classes you have in your state, 3A, 4A, you know, in Illinois for football, we have eight classes. So like those seven, 8A kids. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoy that part about being at Grace because I really don't feel like the work ethic is any different. I feel like um, a lot of our athletes here at Grace are, are willing to push themselves. They understand like not everybody gets this opportunity to play at this level. And so they there's an appreciation for that. And I think there's um, a willingness to push just as hard as those Division One kids. Because at the end of the day, I mean, again, everybody in college, I, I mean, I played Division Three soccer. You're putting in the same amount of time. You just don't get the same perks as those Division One kids. Yeah, like I always said, it's like a D1 training regime, but a high school recovery protocol. Right. <laughs> and it's like, gosh, why, like, why are we always injured? Well, this makes a, makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And especially at the NAI where there aren't as strict of rules as far as like hours and things like that. Again, there are, but it's not, they, they aren't as, uh, as diligent about monitoring that as they are at the NCAA level. So, you know, like when I was at Ball State, those kids, we had to be real strict on getting them in and in the weight room at this time and out at this time. Because again, you got to stay on the hourly schedule and make sure that you're not, you know, going, going over or anything like that. So it's, it's a different kind of challenge here at Grace. That's for sure. Yeah, you uh, touched on something I want to talk about is I'm, I've am i been one of your um, – no, I played soccer here at Grace. You were my strength coach for two years. I've interned under you for a couple of years, and something I've noticed is that um, you develop connections very well with your athletes. And it was like kind of we go into like how – like do you do specific things to try to develop and foster these connections that you have in these relationships? Because there's times to where it's like – People stay 10, 15 minutes after just to have a conversation and talk with you and things like that. It's like, can you kind of dive into that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is, that is probably the most fun part of my job is just those individual conversations. But I think that, and again, I, I'm 27. I haven't been coaching all that long. But I think the biggest thing I've realized is that trust is what's ultimately going to, you know, win or lose you those relationships. And so um, what I really try to get athletes to understand is that, I mean, my whole goal with my job is to help you become a better athlete, help you jump higher, run faster, get stronger, you know, perform better. But at the end of the day, there's a lot more that we can teach in the weight room. This sounds so cliche, but there's a lot more we can teach in the weight room than just moving weight and things like that. I think there's some work ethic things that you can learn from that. And um, there's accountability that can be bred among your teammates and things like that. And so I want everybody to know that I have their best interests far beyond the weight room at heart and understanding that, you know, I'm getting paid to help you be a better athlete, but I care about you far more than just what you do on that court or on that field or on that track. And so um, I think that's also part of wanting to make sure that the weight room is a fun place for them to come back to. Um, and I, I'm stressed to all my athletes. I, I have very high expectations for them. I have very high standards that I expect them to meet every single day they walk into the room. But I never want to be the coach that people are scared to come see or that's just going to walk around and scream and yell for an hour. They don't want to hear my voice like that for an hour. I don't want to hear my voice like that for an hour. Um, and I just want them to know that, like, we're going to get a lot of work done and you, you are going to push yourself. You're going to push each other. Um, but at the end of the day, like, I'm much more inclined to walk over, put my arm around you and ask you how, how you're doing than just like berate somebody in front of their teammates if they're lazy or something like that. Again, because, I mean, they're college athletes. They're, you know, you're at practice for two hours a day. If you lift with me on a day you practice, you're doing athletics for three hours a day. Those other 21 hours of the day, 
you're studying, you're dealing with family drama, you're dealing with relationship drama, you're dealing, I mean, there's so many other things, you know, fighting spiritual battles, things like that. There's so many other things going on in their lives and that, you know, I want them to make sure that they know whatever you're dealing with, like we can always work through that. And, you know, I'm whatever capacity they would like me to be involved in that, if they ever just need a listening ear or somebody to kind of, you know, help them through that stuff that I'm comfortable you know, talking to them about that stuff and that they have that place to go to. So, yeah, I think developing those individual relationships just makes my job easier. And I think it, you know, helps the athletes work harder because they understand that, you know, the their coach is somebody who cares about them. And I think that just helps them be more willing to work hard because they know that it goes beyond just that athletic performance. Yeah. And then um, so you have the relationship with your athletes. And then I kind of want to get into what it's like trying to develop relationships with coaches, especially coaches who don't like to give up control. Um, sure. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I know you deal with that in some aspects here at Grace, not sure exactly. I'm sure it is in other areas like D1 and a bunch of other, like dif- just different divisions that the coaches don't necessarily always trust the strength coach mm-hmm. or they don't, ne- or they always try to, they're like, oh, I'm the actual coach. I can do what I can do with my athletes. What I want to do with them. You're just a strength coach. Like you have to listen to me, type of thing. So could you kind of go into that relationship aspect as well? Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, that's kind of like I said with the athletes. It's about building that trust. And in some ways, that's a lot harder to build that trust with coaches. Um, again, because I mean, when I started here, I was 25 years old, and I think everybody knew this was my first paying job. And, you know, we've had some coaches who have been here for, you know, 10, 15 years. And so, and I say this as a creature of habit, once you kind of find what works for you, you're just going to kind of keep riding that out, Um, especially if your team's having success. And I mean, it makes perfect sense. And so I'll use uh, Dan Davis, our women's basketball coach, as an example here. Um, You know, Dan's been coaching basketball for, for 20 years um, has been at a number of different schools and, and had success. And, you know, he's got our women's basketball team sitting at 15 and seven right now. Um, and Dan and I have really worked hard to develop that relationship and that that trust and um, to the point where this year, and again, keep in mind, this is my third year here. Um, he gave me full control of like their preseason lifting and conditioning and, you know, everything they did over the summer. Um, and he and I just work really, really well together now. And that took you know, two full school years to kind of get to that point. And I just remember when I first started, and this is not specific to, to Coach Davis, but when coaches didn't trust me right away or, you know, were just kind of, I just kept thinking, like, well, I'm the strength coach. Like, you should trust me. It's like, okay, well, I haven't worked with your team yet or I haven't done anything to earn your trust. You know, it's it's just too early on for any of my stuff to really take shape or, you know, show um, any results. And, but that's the fun of building those relationships and, you know, getting FaceTime with those coaches and, and just, you know, investing in their program and helping them to understand like what I know, because I mean, you don't know what you don't know. Right. So, you know, you get sport coaches. I mean, I had it at Ball State, Marquette, Western Michigan. I mean, it doesn't matter where you go. And especially when it comes to like conditioning. Well, I did this when I played, so we're going to do it now. I was like, oh, Okay how long ago did you play? I mean, even if you played five years ago, there's new science out now, there's new research, there are new ways of doing things. So here's what I've read, here's what I've done, here's what I think we can try. 
and then you just kind of find ways to try to blend in what they want to do with what you want to do um, without being too overbearing about like, well, no, you're wrong. I'm right. And because when I say when I was younger, I'm not exactly old at 27, but like when I first started out, I was just so adamant to like prove everybody wrong and like, no, no, like that's not going to work. This is going to work. And then I, you know, go into my stuff. And I think that it's just taken a lot of patience on my part, but it's also taken a lot of patience on the part of the the grace coaches. Cause again, you have this 25 year old kid coming in, who's new to the field, trying to tell you what changes you should make to your program. Um, but again, they have to understand that I'm coming at this from a standpoint of, I want to help your program. I want to develop your athletes. And ultimately I want to hang banners in our arena. That's my goal. I'm not here to push my own agenda just for the sake of my own agenda. How many banners has Grace gotten since you started as their strength coach? Uh, I think NCCAA national championships, I want to say we're at six or seven in three years. But who's counting, right? Yeah. <laughs> no one's counting. <laughs> no, nah, you know, I'm, I might keep track of that. But again, that's, that's uh, a huge credit to the programs that our coaches are building here, and I'm just a small part of it. But it is fun to watch that kind of unfold and – and watch uh, all the success and the the national respect that Grace is starting to get. That's that's always been my goal is to make sure that we're a nationally respected mm-hmm. school. Do you think that a lot of the um, I don't know exactly the the distrust that these coaches place on you? Like, do you think that's a lot of um, almost like, you see it kind of in every situation where there has been leadership? Do you think it's like a, a tradition kind of thing? Like, we've always done this, so we need to keep doing this even when it, it's dead. Like, you beat a dead horse and it's not going to move anymore. So you're going to do the same thing over and over and over and you're not going to get any better or progress. Like, so do you see that a lot with, like, older coaches? Do you think they're a little bit more reluctant to have you help them? Especially because of the fact that I feel like a strength and conditioning coach is definitely more of a new position Yes. for a lot of schools. So, like, kind of like, do you feel like you got a chip on your shoulder all the time? I do because... Again, and that that's kind of goes back to the journey that I went through to get to this point um, because I know – I mean, I told all the Grace coaches uh, over the summer at our, at our coaches' retreat. Um, I spoke to the whole athletic department just about conditioning and things like that. Um, but I told them, like, I'm the best strength and conditioning coach in this room, and I was hired to do this job. That's why I don't go – you know, coach at basketball games. I don't go coach at soccer matches or, you know, track meets or anything like, cause I'm not good at that. That's not what I was hired to do. You know, I've kind of dedicated my working life here to, to being the best strength coach that I can be. And, you know, it's, it's really glamorous when, you know, you're talking about, you know, I'm, I'm at Marquette with Marcus Howard, who's, you know, all American and national player of the year. And, you know, volleyball's ranked top 15 and um, makes a run in the tournament. Women's basketball has a WNBA draft pick on their team. But I was waking up at 3.30 in the morning to drive an hour and a half every single day to get there at 6 a.m. to, like, put my time in and, and learn. And so when coaches are quick to dismiss what I have to say or, um, you know, what I'm trying to tell them, it's kind of like, listen, I, I know I've put my time in. I know I've done the grunt work to get to where I'm at. And I have a long way to go on top of that. But I'm going to keep putting in that work. And, you know, I, I've – used a, a little bit of a prop at the coaches retreat this summer, but I got a stack of research articles in my desk at OPS. That's probably about five inches thick. And that's not counting all the books that I've read and reading isn't everything, but obviously 
you know, I've put this work in, I promise you that. And, you know, give it time. What I'm trying to do will pay dividends. You know, I could show you, you know, what I put the women's basketball team at Grace through here in the month of September. And every single woman on the team saw her vertical go up by at least an inch and a half in a month. And it's just stuff like that where you can then give them that data and just be like, here, I promise you, like, if we can work together and we can find a way to, to coexist here, the the results are going to be there. And so, yeah, there is a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, especially now that I've been here and I've put teams through stuff that has worked um, because, again, that just kind of proves that, like, you know, the, the work that I'm putting in is helping and, you know, the athletes are buying in and the work that they're putting in is helping. So, um, yeah, I definitely – I wouldn't say that I have an ego, but there is a confidence to, to knowing the work that I do and what it's worth. And I think it's really cool. You can obviously tell just by like the way you talk that you have a very much like a healthy obsession. And obviously burnout's a thing, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be that for you anytime soon. Like you obsess over it because you love it and because you obviously see like the fruits of your labor kind of paying off. Like everything that you've, always, you've, you've done, you've always seen some sort of outcome of it. And obviously you've had mistakes and setbacks, but for the most part, you're always kind of going forward, especially with like getting to this different stage, which I think obviously just kind of shows like if you work hard enough at something like obviously you're going to get it. And there's not a problem with like, obviously like getting into, I feel like a lot of people like get on people for having too much of a one way drive going towards, I feel like a lot of people, especially like older people tend to look at like strength and conditioning and working out and athletics and kind of like striving to put on muscle mass or be like a better performer as like almost vain or like egotistical. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know. I, j- I hear, I hear that a lot. I don't know if you see that, like, especially in older coaches, like, I mean, that's, it seems like that's not their goal is to like get their, their athletes stronger and bigger and moving quicker. Right. And I think, that's where social media has really – I'm not going to say it, it hurts the profession, but there, you just got to be careful of what, you know, rabbit holes you're going down on social media um, because you'll get the people that – you know, it's always funny whenever the NFL draft rolls around because you'll see how many people, quote, unquote, worked with this NFL draft pick. And you can just tell that guys – and, you know, I don't often see it from from female strength coaches – um, but just puffing out their chest, like, yeah, I worked with that kid. And it's just kind of like, okay, well, were you doing it for the kid or were you doing it for you? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's, that's one of the things, you know, there are, there are some people in the field that, um, I think at least present it as a way to kind of boost their own ego. Um, whereas I would so much rather, you know, see a kid put on 10 pounds of muscle and then, you know, I got to. I'll give a shout out to Cade Gibbs here, uh, one of our men's basketball players. Um, Cade has worked really hard since he's been here, and this is his third year here. But uh, watching him walk around on media day, I mean, he was filling out his jersey a little bit more, and he, of course, was was feeling himself a little bit. But like, that's just that's what makes my job so special. Is like, I mean, you know, Cade's um, a huge contributor to our team, and and has put in the work, and has battled some injuries, and he's you know, done a lot of things to take care of his body and, you know, he's reaping the benefits from it. And to me, that's, that's what makes my job so fun is when you see a kid like that, you know, get that confidence and notice those changes and then they can go out and play more confidently. That's, that's what I look for. And that's what makes me the happiest in the job. It's so funny that you mentioned Cade Gibbs. So like, I, I know the Gibbs, the Gibbs twins from their freshman year, they were on my hall and they're, 
like the nicest kids you've oh, ever met in your entire life. Don't have a negative word to say about him. It's so, like you're trying to like talk about Cade like filling out and like kind of puffing his chest. Like he's probably like puffing his chest, but in like a like a bashful kind of like I don't want to show people yeah. that I'm getting big <laughs> kind of way. But he's also like, but look at me, like I'm kind of getting big. Oh yeah, absolutely. So it's just kind of a funny picture. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, something I love about the weight room, and a lot of people don't think about it, is it's a huge confidence booster. Like, it's more than just, like, going in and wanting to look big or look good. It's just, like, it can help people. I, I've had the same experience. It's like, the more I go into the gym, the more I work out and work hard and push myself, the more confident I feel in life. And it's like, some people might say I don't need more confidence in life, but other, other people, <laughs> it's just something, one of those things where it's like, it's just, it feels good to go in and work hard and be able to actually see the benefits that are happening. Um, and to have someone who knows what they're doing to come alongside you and be like, oh, this is what you should do here and here. And not only does it build more confidence, like intrinsic confidence, but you can also have more confidence and then people see that on the field or on the court or like on the wherever they're playing their sport at. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, we kind of touched on this just a little bit, but I think the number one word that strength coaches need is passion because it's more than just – Oh, like going on the watching the NFL games on Sunday and you see this huge dude in a super small shirt looking <laughs> jacked. It's like, oh, I wish that was, that was me. I wish I could go in and smash my head against a player's helmet type of thing. But it's like, I don't know how many people would go and do three unpaid internships, wake up at 430 in the morning, unpaid nine, go nine whole months without a job. I'm, this isn't bashing anyway. I'm just saying like it's the passion that you have to drive you to do this job. Um, you're how many you wake up at what four thirty in the morning every day most days four forty five five yeah. o'clock yeah you stay up till at work six seven and six seven at night some nights it's just it's a passion and it's like Zach said it's not a it's a healthy obsession with your job but if you if you aren't passionate about it you're gonna hate yourself absolutely working twelve hours a day mm-hmm. minimum yeah definitely and I mean there's a lot that you know you're gonna have to deal with as there is with with any job um, but you know you'll you'll go set up the weight room for a team to come in and that team doesn't show up. And I mean, shoot, you were there with me one day when we did that. Um, and that, you know, there's things that will, will irritate you and that will, will get under your skin. Um, again, as there is with any job, but, uh, it's just, it's knowing again, from my own personal experiences, what every single day that you step in that weight room, that like you're getting better. And for the longest time, you know, I approached that from, well, I have to improve myself so that I compare better to this person. And now that, you know, that was part of just being competitive in athletics and things like that. And also just getting into the field. Cause like you said, I mean, you look on any football sideline, there's a dude there that probably squats 500, 600 pounds, benches, you know, 350. And you're just kind of, I'm standing there as a retired soccer player, like, holy cow, like I'm a little self-conscious. Like anytime I go to coaches conferences, I'm looking around, I'm like, yeah, I don't look like a lot of these guys here. (laughs) Um, but then, you know, I was able to kind of reframe that that mindset and start working for myself to to better myself and not worry so much about comparing myself to everybody else. And so, you know, that's when you have those teams come in the weight room, it offsets any, you know, negative about the job. When you see a kid jump higher than they've ever jumped before, they, you know, move a weight uh, that's heavier, or they move it faster than they ever have before. And you just get to see the look of joy on their faces. Like, that's why that always keeps me coming back because you know that, you know, they're experiencing something where they're pushing themselves harder than they thought they could. Um, or they're starting to love something that you love. Um, again, probably not in the same way or as much, but, um, I just think that the weight room is such a fun place to be in because, um, even when you 
fail, if there's a weight that you, you know, one day your body's just not letting you move it or whatever, you're going to come back and do it again eventually. And then that's when you're going to realize, okay, I'm capable of this or, you know, things like that. So um, the, the passion is seeing other people succeed. And so, yeah, you know, having teams that no show or, you know, things like that. I mean, that, that's just part of the job and that's part of communicating with 14 different coaches and having over 300 athletes, that stuff's going to happen. But, um, yeah, the, the positives far, far outweigh the negatives of the job for sure. So it's actually, I, I enjoy this topic. Um, it feels like weightlifting and like getting into shape is something that can bring your confidence up so high, but it can also take you down to like some of the lowest spots, like mentally mm-hmm. that you can be at. And I've, I've obviously like, I mean, growing up, like being in sports and then being in high school, when you're in high school, you're always forced to coach like the kids camps and it's always easy to put kids through a certain drill or whatnot. But when you have a team of 20 dudes for a basketball roster, when you have a soccer team of all these girls, all these guys, obviously like it's probably harder to create a sport specific program for these people and for every sort of like body type and because i mean they're fully they're i mean not fully developed but they're getting to the point like point where they're developing a ton so like how do you not only develop these um programs for these athletes but also with the confidence aspect um how do you set goals for these athletes without them being super broad to the point that like everyone can kind of attain it but nobody can get great at it but it's also specific enough that these people want to see these goals and it's not just a goal that you have in mind for the athlete. Yeah. Um, I think that that's something where I almost, I try to set smaller goals. Um, very rarely will I ever set a goal for an athlete that like, this is going to take us months to get to it. Because again, I want them to experience a bunch of little victories along the way. And I think that, you know, like with our women's basketball team, um, again, I'll use them as an example. You know, it's kind of funny when you look back over the summer, uh, like Maddie Ryman, Kenzie Ryman, Kaylee Patton, um, those who are local athletes who work with me over the summer, you know, you'll watch their back squat numbers just very slowly but steadily climb. It may be like five pounds every other week, um, but it just really starts to add up as time goes on. And so um, I always try to stress to the athletes, well, if you – so I don't I don't believe in, in doing one rep maxes. I like to do – you know, a three rep max or a heavy triple, as I call it. Um, I just think it's more manageable and safer for our athletes. But, um, you know, if your heavy triple number or three rep max goes up five pounds in a month, that's a victory right there. You got stronger. And sometimes they'll say, well, it's only five pounds. Well, no, I mean, that's, that's five pounds. I would give anything to get five pounds (laughs) on my one rep, like, or three, like especially over three reps too. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Cause I mean, then you think about it. I mean, yeah, as, as that starts to move up um and as you know the stronger you get the harder it is to make those jumps and so you'll see the freshmen come in and if you know once they're capable of of lifting that heavy and i feel comfortable with their um movement patterns and things like that you know they're i mean 10 pounds 20 pounds i mean they'll make huge jumps as their body gets used to to what they're doing um but then you see the upperclassmen who you got to appreciate those those little victories because they're gonna not come as often as they would have when you were a freshman or a sophomore Um, and so just getting them to understand that, like, you know, I never want to set a goal that is, that is too far out of reach or that, you know, where if they miss it, you know, there's going to be a lot of, 
you know, what's the word I'm looking for here? Just disappointment and like um, thinking that they haven't worked hard enough because also at the end of the day, sometimes your body's just not feeling it. You're college athletes. You're going to bed at 11 o'clock. That's probably an early night of sleep right there. Um, you know, if you got practice at 6 a.m., then you're waking up at, well, let's be real, college athletes are waking up at about 5.40 for a 6 a.m. Uh, practice. But um, Especially on a walking campus. Yeah. Like, oh, well, 5.50, I can get there by 6. Absolutely. Good. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you're sleep-deprived. you got classes to worry about. I mean, you just got all these stressors that are weighing on you, and that's going to play a huge role in the weight room. And so, um, yeah, just understanding that, those those little victories that's what you got to really count on because that's what's going to keep you moving forward yeah i i love that i just feel like it's very hard to i mean do this goal setting and this program creation for such like a large group of people i don't know if you ever run into that i mean like (laughs) i i feel like a lot of people like especially i mean me obviously i i i hate this part about me but when you get into school i feel like exercise science is kind of like a People are like, okay, like, what do you, what are you gonna do with that? Oh yeah. So like, you're like exercise science, and I'm always like, oh, but pre chiropractic, like, I'm gonna be a doctor. <laughs> but I don't think people give enough credit to like the strength and conditioning realm. Like, I mean, everyone's like, teachers are so great, and teachers are so great. But I mean, that's what you're doing. But you're teaching something, in my opinion, that can be far more beneficial. I mean, we just learned this in biomechanics. Christy, our professor. Um, She loves movement. And so her first slide was movement is life. And that's so, so true. I mean, if you, you have such a big part in having this, um, creating this movement pattern for these athletes to have a biomechanical advantage, not only in their sport and at this age, but something that's going to carry with them for so long. So you can be the determining factor as to whether or not this 20-year-old sophomore in college is going to have pain when they're 65 because they back-squatted with either a good or a bad strength and conditioning coach. So it's kind of, I feel like a lot of people don't give you enough credit and other strength and conditioning coaches that are good enough credit. And I don't know if you ever felt have felt like that, but I just feel like that's something I've seen. Yeah, definitely. And again, I'll, I'll point back to social media with that one. Um, there are so many people who think they can do what I do that it's just you know like anytime I get on Instagram or Twitter and I see somebody who you know hit the genetic lottery looks really good um and they just list off their their workout for the day and every single exercise is three sets of 12 and it's just kind of like okay well then a month later you see they're still doing three sets of 12 and it's like so you just run this for like why are you doing that do you know why you're doing that yeah. many sets that many reps don't forget the uh, goblet hold squat on a sumo ball <sighs> with single leg isometric started on that <laughs> i'm a big fan of eccentric isometrics this is where <laughs> oh, we're going if that's a rabbit hole we're going on, we're gonna be here a long time let me tell you yeah but it's actually kind of funny that you like sh- I mean, for back of a, lack of a better term, you like kind of shouted out those like social media genetic douchers. Like, they're terrible. Like those guys that are just standing in the mirror with these skinny boy abs. They worked out for a year, and they're like, "This is my my workout." You start with flat bench for three sets of twelve, and then you go into dumbbell bench, and then you go into incline dumbbell bench, and then you go into flies. Yes, for custom programming, three by ten for everything. And then yeah. you're like, you're like, well, how do you do that much volume? Right. Like, obviously, you're not working hard enough that you can push that much volume for s- s- that much weight. And not be completely just gassed. After, like, I go do a three by five and I'm like, 
wow, that was a lot of reps. Right. Son and then you're going to go tell somebody who you have no idea what their background in lifting is, yeah, do this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, this person can't do five push-ups, but you're going to go tell and just blow their chest out of the water with this yeah. workout that literally is going to have about 200 reps of chest on it. Like, come on. I think that's something I've, I kind of talk about this in some of my classes when we have discussion posts and everything, but it's like, it doesn't take a lot to create an exercise program. Like you could be the dumbest person on earth and create an exercise program that will make someone tired. That'll make them sore. That will make them think it was a good workout because mm-hmm. they're tired, sore, gasping for air on the ground. But it's like, those aren't markers of what a good program or a good workout is. It's like, you have to see, oh, like, are you able to see growth? Is there progressive overloaders or things like this to where it's like, oh, if you keep doing this thing, you're going to be injured in 10 weeks just because you're pushing right. this much volume. And it's like, you have to be just like with everything in life. If you want to be successful, you have to basically have to be smart and work hard. And that's exactly what it is with programming or strength coach or being a personal trainer or anything like this. It's like, you just have to put in the work, which you've done five. In, I, I don't know the last time I've read five inches worth of material. Like, <laughs> Oh, CS, CS manual. Never mind. Yeah. I haven't read five inches worth of material. <laughs> You will once chiropractic. I listen. Yeah, I, was I say, listen. Your time's coming. I listen to like that, but I just can't get myself to sit down and read it. That's tough. So yeah, kudos to you. Yeah, I appreciate that. But um, what were you saying again? Because I feel like I had a point to say. Uh, uh, it does. It doesn't take a lot to build a strength program or a conditioning yes. program. Yeah, and that's why um, Dan John, one of the more reputable strength coaches um, in the field, one thing that. He, I read in one of his books that has always stuck with me is that athletes should always be able to go to the next thing. So if they're practicing and they have lifting after practice, which, again, ideally we should flip-flop that, but, you know, leave that as it is, um, they should be able to go from lifting to practice and be able to perform at practice. And even though practice may be their last athletic thing of the day, they should be able to go to dinner and then sit down and do their homework without being completely blown out of the water. And... So for me, it's it's just so funny. Like, you know, I'll have athletes when they know their their off season is coming up. Like, well, well, are you gonna kill us this spring? Or are you gonna kill us in the fall? Like, no, I I never. There there will not be one time where you will be like crawling out of my weight room. There will never be a time where you are limping out or just laying on the floor, ever. Because we don't need to do that. And honestly, if that's the way that your workouts go, like you just said, you may be able to do that for a month, but you're gonna be super burnout. You're going to have no motivation to come back because you're going to hate your life being in the weight room with me. And then now here I've just lost you and all the interest that you had in coming in. So, no, I would much rather have it be, you know, especially once they're in season, like we can get a lot of good work in 35, 40 minutes that will result in you getting stronger even in season and you won't be the least bit sore the next day. Yeah, because there's kind of this, I think there's this uh, myth out there that you have to spend a minimum of one hour in the gym for it to actually count. Yeah. And it's like, no, you just have to have correct volume and intensity Yeah. over 35, 45 minutes. I mean, you could even you do a 20-minute workout that's going to be more effective than an hour workout. Absolutely. And then I think one of the, in the, you know, five-inch stack articles, I think it's by Brad Schoenfeld, who's like the guru of all things hypertrophy. Um, he did a study about you know, is muscle soreness an accurate indicator of muscle growth? Because, you know, you have those people who are like, well, I, I want to be sore. I want to feel like I did something. And, you know, that's all well and good. Like, but if you're chasing that feeling, then chances are you're going to be so sore you don't want to come back the next day. And you can get a lot of good work in without just totally killing yourself. Because, you know, again, what good is being sore if that costs you in your game two days later? Or if that 
you know, you don't want to go do your individual workout over the summer, like for basketball or soccer, baseball, whatever, because you're so stinking sore that you can't get off your couch. Well, now you're just costing yourself a day of work. So, yeah, I, I'm always of the opinion that let's do, honestly, I mean, the least amount of work that we can while being the most effective. I like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I feel like it's just like there's so many different rabbit holes that you can kind of go down, especially with like this whole realm of strength and conditioning. But I kind of want to transfer it like a little bit more. I know a lot of people have problems with um, program selection, like exercise selection within the programs mm-hmm. and sport specificity. Like, I mean, in um, and, and especially like like repetitions, like periodization. Like, I would never. Like, I, I mean, obviously, I'm not a strength coach, but I would never have like, for example. I threw javelin and I had a lot of stress on my shoulder all the time. So I would never like if I was programming for myself or the other javelin throwers, I would never have them one rep max in the middle of a season. Like, all right, we're going for as much heavy singles as we can do or heavy triples or whatever. And I feel like a lot of strength coaches tend to tend to kind of do that or like do that sort of like periodization like incorrectly. So when you're looking at like sport specificity, like what are like a couple of things that you're looking forward like when you're programming for these teams? You know, it's funny that you mention sport specificity because that's one of my least favorite terms, and I'm I'm not ragging on you there. It's more coming from the the sport coaches or the parents of the younger athletes that I coach. Let um, me let me rephrase: sport transferability. There we go. Um, well, so yeah, because sport specificity, I think a lot of coaches and parents would be shocked. To know that, I mean, our teams at Grace and even my younger kids at OPS, probably 80 to 85% of their programs are all the same. I have a question about that. Is that like a testament of the basics work? Is that kind of like your thought process towards that? Is like just build on the basics? Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, I'll have, say I got a sixth grader that comes in for the first time. When he does his assessment with me, I'll have him body weight squat. If he can do that, keeps his chest up sits his butt between his knees, keeps his feet flat on the floor. Next time he comes in, we'll do a goblet squat, okay? Do about a month of that. Once he's got that, we'll do a landmine squat. Masters that, we'll front squat. Masters that, we'll back squat. There you go. He's been there four months, and we're already at the highest progression. Now, if he, you know, needs any extra time at any one of those progressions, we'll keep him there. It's the same with the college kids, you know? Um, Now, once it's a team setting, we'll probably have – everybody back squat or front squat whatever we're doing um but we had a transfer come in um to join our softball team and i'd never seen her move before so everybody else was back squat and i had her goblet squat once she passed that i said okay now i trust you i want you to go with this group because they're people who i trust can coach you if you need it but she's been here a week or two and is already back squatting um and again she had some familiarity with the weight room which helped um but again i mean my it's always funny to see like my OPS kids that just think it's the coolest thing in the world that they're doing the same exercises as the Grace College kids like they see Grace College kids goblet squatting and they're like oh my gosh like I do that and it's like well yeah man I mean it's it's a squat movement pattern everybody's going to do it and everybody's going to do single leg work everybody's going to horizontally push and pull okay everybody's going to vertically push and pull everybody's going to do loaded carries and we just find what progressions work especially for the younger kids because their skill levels are going to be much different um and then we just kind of plug in from there. Now, obviously, you'll get into some intricacies with, 
you know, whether we're doing cluster sets for, our, you know, things like that or heavy triples or, you know, whatever. You, you'll get into the, the fancy set and rep uh, methodology there. But as far as exercise selection, I mean, whether a kid's 10 or 22, chances are they're going to do the same exercises at some point. Yeah, I'd uh, kind of piggybacking off that question is periodization is a huge thing. A lot of strength coaches talk about and how it's like, oh, like for every four weeks you do heavy work, you have to have one week of rest week, blah, blah, blah. But it's like when seasons are months long and especially with conference where you play two times a week, like how, how do you play around with periodization or even do you even periodize at all? I was going to say, uh, to answer your question, I don't periodize for anybody. And I'll tell you, the number one reason for that was the pandemic that we're going through. Um, I remember it was right when we got put uh, kind of the shelter in place, um, spring of 2020, I think it was. It's all running together in our canyon. Gosh, it's been two years. Right, it's yeah, been it's, it's been two years. I can't even, like, remember where we've been at in this. Two weeks to flatten the curve two years later. There you go, yeah. Um, so I sat down in my apartment, and I made an annual plan for every Grace team that I was working with at the time. I think there were, like, eight or nine at the time. Um, you know, this month we're going to do this. And I had a little key at the bottom, like, intensity, uh, volume, um like five different things and ranked them like one through five, what was going to be important, what wasn't, or what was going to be stressed and what wasn't. And then we come back for the fall and eight of our teams got quarantined at different points in time during the fall. And I'm like, well, okay. So they're all sitting at home and can't lift or they're going to come back. We're going to lift for two weeks and then go on Thanksgiving break. And so I threw all that stuff out the window. And the thing is, I mean, we're still – successful as an athletic department we're still winning games and and doing huge things and um i think that that just really because then when when i was periodizing and really stressing about like okay we're in this phase right now we're in this phase right now it was so stressful when things you know weren't going you know you get uh so like our basketball teams when they're in conference they play wednesday saturday well in the non-conference season sometimes you'll get a random tuesday game You'll get a weekend where they play Friday, Saturday, and then just throws everything off from there. So then I was getting like really stressed out, like, okay, I'm not adapting well to this. And so, um, you know, the pandemic really kind of showed me like, okay, we don't have to be so rigid in our phases and like what we're trying to target. Um, Now, it's a little different in the summer when I know, you know, the soccer teams and volleyball, like they're gearing up for their season. They're not at practice at all. Um, So we can kind of, you know, plan out their months a little differently. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, with women's basketball, we went through a, a phase where, you know, we worked on French contrast and, you know, producing vertical power and things like that. Um, so there will be little, um, you know, pauses in the calendar like that where we'll, we might do something special, for lack of a better term. Um, but like my younger kids, I mean, they don't need periodization. It's all basics anyway. Um, so we'll just kind of keep them within rep ranges of like three to maybe ten um, for the entire time they work with me. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as far as periodizing and, you know, your basic strength phase, your hypertrophy phase, all this, I, I kind of look back and laugh at, um, how much they stressed that in school, because I just don't think that that's the way things go. And as far as, you know, deloading weeks, I, I really, up until this school year, um, I always had deload weeks. And then again, with the pandemic, it just kind of made me realize like life is naturally going to give you those deload days. Like, you know, you're going to have kids who are sick. You're going to have weeks where your team 
goes out of state for a tournament or for just like a team trip or something like that. Um, or, you know, the schedule is going to be busy and you're just going to have the lifting canceled for that day or so. So like life is just going to present you with those deload days. Now it's obviously then on me to make sure that if we're going to run this as long as we can, that I'm not running them into the ground. Um, but as far as just like a full on, we're dialing it back for the next two, three, four workouts. I haven't really, you know, felt the need to do that. And I haven't noticed any, you know, negative effects of not doing that. So I think for right now, that's probably the way I'll keep approaching things. So you kind of said a little bit about your deload days. I, I listen to podcasts. It's a little bit like kind of go hard or go home, like PR or ER kind of people. And they always talk about like deload days, like, a, they think a planned deload day is stupid, that your deload, like, weeks or deload days should be like, okay, like, I can't take anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, so I need to deload. Give me a little, I need a little bit of time. And it kind of just, like, comes and goes um, just with how however you feel during your program. Do you think, like, is that kind of a philosophy you take? Or are you big on, like, planning your deload days out? I have actually, it's, it's great that you mentioned that because um, I know, like, in my own personal workouts, I used to, you know, if I finished up a four-week, uh, you know, phase or program, um, I'd usually take a week where, you know, instead of lifting, I'll walk on the treadmill or shoot baskets, you know, for 30 minutes and just kind of move around a little bit like an active rest sort of thing. And I just kind of like noticed like my body didn't feel bad while I was doing that. So I'm kind of like, all right, I'm kind of wasting valuable training time here. And so that's kind of the approach that I take now is, you know, if I walk in and, you know, I deadlifted heavy the day before and so my hamstrings and my lower back are a little tight, well, then, okay, we'll dial back, you know, the sets or the percentage that I'm working at. And so one of the things, again, I always refer back to the women's basketball team because, you know, they're one of the teams that I work the closest with. Um, On their next program here, we're right in the heart of our conference season, um, actually past the halfway point of our conference season. So um, I have four workouts lined up. It's actually two workouts, um, but one is higher in volume and intensity than the other one. And so, you know, I'll give those who are our usual starters or played heavy minutes, um, you know, say we're doing back squat that day. So you have your warm up sets. And then when you get to your working sets, I'm going to give you the option. You can be anywhere between 70 and 85% of your estimated one rep max. So if your body feels really good and you want to push yourself, you go right ahead, get up towards that 80%. If, you know, like Maddie Ryman, who usually plays like 38 minutes out of 40, you want to stay at that 70%, focus on sitting low, getting good range of motion, being under control, you go right ahead. I'm fine with that. So it just gives them a chance to read their bodies. And again, that kind of builds in a little bit of a deload based on the the workload that they've put on their bodies. Um, So I just think it's been better to read your body rather than trying to tell your body the way it should feel or when you should dial it back. Cause you uh, take part in R- using RPE as well, right? Is that kind of another way to do kind of that laid back training if your body's not up, up for it? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's another reason why I like doing heavy triples. Um, I think it's great to be able to get that estimated one rep max and use that for percentages. But I also think at some point, Again, as long as you're being safe with it and the the athletes are capable of doing it, I think athletes need to understand what it feels like to grind through a heavy weight Um, just so that they know, okay, RPE scale goes 1 to 10. 10 is I could not do more reps. I could not do more weight. Again, if we're going to use the RPE scale, then they need to know what a 10 is. And I would never 
ever like I've always told athletes, I do not want you to find a weight that you fail at. You may fail like I mean, it's it may happen. Okay, that's why we always spot every rep. Um, but I want you to know what that feels like, where it may take you three, four, five seconds to lock out a bench press or something like that. Um, because again, then that just gives you that knowledge for when we do the RPE scale. Okay, today we're doing sets of five. I want you to do an RPE of seven. Okay, so you know, find a weight that you could probably do eight times. And we're gonna do it five instead. Um, and I just want them to have that, you know, basis of thought of okay. So that's going to be this weight for me. Or I remember how hard it felt to try and bench this weight. So I'm going to stay at this weight today based on how my body feels. And that's the other nice thing about it is with the RPE, you know, some I, I use percentages a lot, um, but percentages can also be relative. You know, you're, you're 75% today when it's Monday, you're coming off of, you know, you played on Saturday, but you had all day Sunday to rest. We're lifting at 1130 and you don't have an 8 a.m. today. So you're feeling really fresh. 75% may be a breeze. Now, we play Wednesday night, we're lifting at 10.30 Thursday morning, and you had an 8 a.m., So, and it was a road game. So let's say you get back from Spring Arbor or Marion, one of those two-hour trips, you get back at 12, 12.30, you had to get up at 7 for your 8 a.m., you just played 35 minutes last night, 75% is probably going to feel pretty heavy. So when you use the RPE, then, okay, a 7 to me today is not what a 7 was to me on Monday. It gives them that freedom to read their body and then adjust accordingly. I think that um, people who train a lot kind of know those in, intrinsic signs that their body's giving them of, oh, I can go hard today or like I need to need to set it back. And it's that's where it's hard for you as a strength coach to be able to determine those intrinsic abilities because it's mm-hmm. possible. But that's why I like the RPE system that you use is because you're allowing them to read their own body and you're not telling them, oh, like, no, you need to grind through an 85% like set of three or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, you hit the nail on the head there because it, it is tough. I mean, I, I have athletes who I almost need to give them a lower RPE because I know, like, I love Madison Tuma to death on our women's soccer team, but I know Madison Tuma will always want to go, like, RPE of 9 or 10 after she just played, you know, 70 minutes of a soccer match the night before. Um, so there are those athletes who consistently just want to push themselves, and that's a that's a, a great attribute to have in an athlete. But it, it, that is when my job gets a little tougher because you're like, no, listen to me. Like, even if your body's feeling it, like, now now is not the time. So we just gotta gotta dial dial you back a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I feel like even when I was an athlete, no pain, no gain was such like a mantra you felt like you had to have in order to be yes. better. But like, I feel like oftentimes people gotta get into their head. Like, sometimes if you have pain, you're you're not gonna gain. Like, if right. you like, pain is no gain. The the complete opposite. And I feel like like we you talked about this way earlier. Obviously, like you meet the person where they're at, and you expect them to meet you where you're at. Obviously, so I think that's kind of a super beneficial thing to have as a strength coach. Um, I want to kind of shift this a little bit to more of an education standpoint. Um, obviously, you know what you're talking about, and you're a literature guy and whatnot. And so, for a lot of the people that are in our situation well my situation specifically now that Colton's out and about no longer in school but do you feel as if your school prepared you for where you're at or if your post-grad or your grad school or your extracurricular stuff that you did on your own like what prepared you the most to be the best in what you're doing now I would say if I had to narrow it down to two things um 
actually, I can't even narrow it down to two. I would say um, my internships and my grad assistantship, um, definitely top of the list, very hands-on. Um, I was trusted with a lot of responsibility and just had to find my way through it. Um, Coach Roberson and Coach Harrison at Ball State had very minimal impact on like guidance. Their their whole thing was, listen, you're here, figure it out. Okay. And again, those three words, Todd Smith, love him to death at Marquette. Um, he would not allow me to ask him questions. It was always figure it out. I would never forget my first day at Marquette, men's basketball team is about to come in and they use um, Elite Form, which is on the iPads. Um, it's a software program. He said, go in the back and get their workout set up on the laptop. I've never used Elite Form before in my life. And I'm also not exactly a tech, technology wizard. And I was like, well, how do I do that? Figure it out. And he just walked out of the office. And I got about five minutes here before, <laughs> before these guys come. This is going to be my first impression with these guys. And then they're supposed to trust me. And thankfully, Stu Roche, uh, one of the assistant strength coaches and my internship supervisor, he uh, gave me a little guidance and, and helped me get it up there. But I think it's also because he knew that Todd was going to be super ticked if it wasn't ready. Um, but that from then on, it was just like, okay, figure it out. You know, and that's why I read a lot. That's why um, I kind of took it upon myself to read books and, you know, follow a bunch of reputable people on Twitter and, and things like that. And I think the other thing that's been super helpful for me um, has just been my own training. I always tell my athletes, I will never put you through something that I have not done myself. Um, so I read, you know, articles from Christian Thibodeau and did his workouts and, you know, started incorporating clusters after I'd done them for myself. Um, Jake Tura, you know, his um, hypertrophy protocols and vertical jump protocols with French contrast, Cal Dietz with his French uh, contrast stuff. I read that stuff. I did it myself. And then I put our teams through it. So um, there's nothing that I've done that I've created on my own. It's all stuff that I've absorbed from other people. Um, and it's just funny when I, if I were to rank out the things that helped me the most, my four years of undergrad would be last on the list. Mm -hmm. um, and again, at Ball State, I know that they, their undergrad, I think they had kind of a focus on strength and conditioning, but they also had strength and conditioning available to them. They had a whole department that was obviously a part of, of um, the athletic department. At Anderson, we don't have a single shred of strength and conditioning. We don't have a coach. I mean, I, I learned the bulk of my exercise science classes were taught by a marathon runner who didn't like lifting weights. So we would just like skip the resistance training stuff and just talk about like aerobic conditioning because it's the stuff that he did and the stuff that he knew. And so I just remember like leaving Anderson and like, you know, I, I could have worked harder in college. I, I could have studied more and read more, um, but I just kind of skated on by. And, and then I got to grad school and, you know, they're asking us like, okay, like, you, you know, like develop a resistance program or uh, resistance workout and bring it in and then we're going to go over it. And so, you know, reading all the muscle mags and everything that I was reading in college, like men's fitness and stuff, I came in with like chest day and leg day and all this stuff. And they're like, yeah, no, that ain't it, dude. And I was like, holy cow, I got a lot to learn. And so just took it upon myself from there. But um, yeah, it, again, I'm not saying that undergrad is not important. I am I'm not saying, you know, um, pay less attention to your, to your studies because that's really important stuff. And I, I wish I would have worked harder in that regard because then I would probably wouldn't have been as far behind um, as I felt when I was in grad school. But um, just because you got that piece of paper in your hand when you graduate does not mean that you know everything there is to know. My diploma came in the mail today. 
I've never once held a $100,000 piece of paper in my hand, and it felt absolutely worthless. You put that in a frame right now because that's all it's good for. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I got a Snapchat today and it said, 100 grand. I was like, wow, I'm going to be there in about three months. Oh, it is a great and terrible feeling, let me tell you. Yeah, I think I just, I'm not just saying Grace College, I'm just saying like school in general, undergrad, is they do a good job of teaching you, but they don't do a good job of teaching you how to apply it into yes. real world, like real world activities. Because who cares if you know what hypertrophy is if you don't know how to program it for a client? Right. Like just because, I mean, just because it says in the book five sets of eight at seventy five percent. What What does that mean? Like, right. how are you going to get your client to be able to do it effectively? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, you get them to do it effectively, but you have them do it one time. They're not their muscles mass isn't going to, or their cross sectional area isn't going to increase. Like it's being able to apply it in real life. And I mean, there's like at Grace, we have these labs where we have like internships and practicums and things like that. But it's it's just not the same as actually going into a job site and performing the work. Because like, who who cares if you can click oh ATP on a multiple choice quiz? Like that doesn't mean anything in the real world. Like right. no one really cares if you know what the Krebs cycle is. And you want to know how many times I've talked about the Krebs cycle since I graduated undergrad? Probably the only times I've asked you questions about it. Honestly. That is exactly <laughs> actually at least a hundred <laughs> times, or at least that's what school makes you Daily, think, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's actually funny that you said what you said about like it teaches you teaches you but doesn't teach you how to apply it like i mm-hmm. it's actually funny me and my aunt were having this conversation i was over at my grandma's house and there were people over and she was like you know school is kind of taking this turn for the worse i would think so say for example you were majoring in bicycle riding right so you would go to class and you would learn about the history of schwinn and you would learn about the history of all these places and how they made the rubber and you'd go into like the history of goodyear and how they made the bike and how they made the metal and then you have maybe an internship where you get to go ride a bike, and then you go back to the history of the bike, and then four years pass, and they go, all right, go out into the world and ride a bike. You're, you're, like, you're like, well, <laughs> uh, I know a lot about this bike, but I really don't know how to ride this bike. And I feel like that's a lot of like a flaw within like this education system that we have such this high standard for. Which obviously not try not to dog on school. I think schools helped me a lot. We're all highly educated people. We're not <laughs> we're not saying anything bad against school. We're just saying it could change. Yeah, but I seriously, you know, I'm, you know, I've had my CSCS for four years, and I've had my SCCC um, for three, almost four, and the most valuable thing was for the SCCC in order to qualify, even to sit for it was you had to do a 640-hour internship. So that was my time at Marquette. Then you go take a written test, and then you have to go to the national conference and do a practical exam in front of a panel of other strength coaches. So you have to develop a program. They give you a sport and what phase of the season they're in. You have to make a program. And then when you go there, you sit in front of that panel, and they just get to ask you questions for 10, sec- or 10 minutes about that program, and you have to sit there and defend it. And then when you're done there, they hit the buzzer, you go to the table behind you, and then they just ask you like, okay, teach us how to back squat. And you have to go through everything, spotting, how to set up the rack, what height the bar should be at, where your hands should be, where your feet should be, everything. And then that's how you get that certification. And then I look at the CSCS where you sit down and it's just a written test and anybody can take it. You know how many people I know with a CSCS that I'm like, dude, you could not do what I do. I mean, probably a good amount. A good amount. And this is not to dog physical therapists or personal trainers, but like 
I quickly found out just because you got those letters next to your name does not mean that you're you're qualified to do this. Um, and again, I mean that is no disrespect. I, I mean that more as you got to get into the field and actually do it in order to appreciate it and understand what you're doing. Just knowing those textbook answers that may give you the certification, but that does, I mean the the grunt work and actually doing it. You know, the big thing in, on strength and conditioning is you know skin in the game. That's the the catchphrase, but you know, there's some merit to that. You you have to be able to, to do it and in order to understand what you're actually trying to achieve here. Yeah, like the uh, the smartest person I know when it comes to like the human body programming, personal training, everything like that, only has one certification and it's not strength and conditioning. It's his CFL level one. I'm sure you're mm-hmm. gonna love that it's CrossFit. <laughs> but it's like he's he owns his own gym. He has been in the game for I don't even know if he has his masters. I don't even I don't think he has his master's. I don't know if he has his bachelor's. I think he has his bachelor's, but I don't know. But it's like he's been doing it for his entire life. Like he knows mm-hmm. what he's doing because he's been applying it. He hasn't been sitting down reading a 750-page manual because he's actually, like you said, skin of the game. He he is applying what he's learned. Where it's that I found myself in that trap of like, yeah, I can have all this knowledge in my head and I can tell you what it's like, but that doesn't mean I can apply it to my life. Right. Like just because I know you need to have 1 to 12 to 1 to 20 breast work rest period for a certain exercise doesn't mean you can go out and apply it to people like like you do type yeah of thing. and that's where you know what i did with the women's basketball team when we were doing their french contrast stuff i'm sure anybody you know, i mean could read what i read like okay if we do this we're we should be able to jump higher our vertical um you know jump numbers should go up but then when i actually did it you know over the summer that i could tell the women on the team okay on this day you're gonna feel like this on this day you're going to feel like this. And it, again, it's understanding. That's why I try to do everything I put our athletes through, because if I don't know how it's going to end up or how I'm going to feel, I can't be comfortable putting them through it because again, I'm doing it. And then I'm, you know, pacing around a room coaching the rest of the day, they're doing it and then going to practice for two hours and then going to do two hours of homework. And they got a lot more going on than just me. Who's, you know, doing this and can recover with a lot quicker and, you know, get to bed at an easier hour. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's understanding what you're actually doing through practicing it and not just like, okay, I read this, so we're going to do it because it should look like this. I feel like that's so good. Like trial by fire, like, like all your, like that guy from Marquette said, figure it out. Yeah. I mean, just figure it out. And I feel like when you trial and error is like one of the most powerful tools in in terms of learning i feel like especially for myself and i mean obviously like within the school realm you learn a little bit better like about anatomy and physiology which is all important stuff especially within our field but um you you definitely skimp on the application when you don't have to get in there and go to like get thrown to the wolves and figure it out right and so like obviously like we've kind of talked about like yeah our exercise science degree might be the last thing on our list of what's helped us the most. And so what would you say, like, uh, ask for three resources. So we ask Brady for three resources. We ask you for three resources. Like something that's like accessible to somebody who's either still in school, just graduated school, or they're thinking more into the realm of strength and conditioning. Maybe they're doing a GA ship. Like something to help them like better their education and help once they get to the spot where they have to apply their knowledge that they feel like a little bit more comfortable and ready to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say, um, so there are three people whose work I have read pretty extensively. Get out a pen and a pad, write these down. Um, 
I'd say Christian Thibodeau has been a really big help for me. Um, so he writes for tnation.com a lot. He also has his own website, which is tibarmy.com. Um, also, I'm not you know paid to uh, advertise for these guys, but they've uh, these are just uh, resources that I've exhausted. Um, Cal Dietz and his triphasic training. I actually just read that for the first time um, this past spring. And I really liked that book because there are some books out there that people will tell you like, oh, this is a strength and conditioning Bible, you know, like Super Training by Mel Sif. And then you look at it, it is so dense. I mean, it's a very, very good book to read. I've never read it because I just look at it and I'm like, I like, would it be useful? 100%. Could I actually sit down and retain what I'm reading? I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's, the information yeah. is just so intricate. Um but again, that's why Mel Sif is one of the you know most well-known names in strength and conditioning. But um, I think the thing about triphasic training is it's a it's a textbook. I mean, it's three hundred and some pages, but it's very easy to read. He shows you the programs that he uses. Um, you get hyperlinks to all the videos with exercise demonstrations. It's just very easy to understand and very easy to follow along with. And it's got a lot of really good. It may not, you know triphasic training may not be the programming approach you want to take. But as far as understanding, I mean, just, you know, stress shortening cycles, things like that, like it's it's really, really a good read. Um, I'm trying to think of a th- anything by Dan John. Dan John really simplifies things. Um, his Easy Strength book uh, is, a, is a very easy read. Um, you know, ironically enough, that's a really good one. It, it just breaking down um, simple programming but effective programming. Um, so, yeah, I would say those three guys, Christian Thibodeau, um, Cal Dietz, and, and Dan John are three guys that I've – really leaned heavily upon these past couple of years. Have you attempted his 10,000 uh, kettlebell swing challenge? You know what? I never have. I did do his uh, Mass Made Easy six-week plan, um, actually, when I first started at OPS. And, you know, I, I have to laugh because I said earlier that I would never have athletes, like, laying on the floor after a workout. But, man, that <laughs> a couple of those workouts put me on the ground. I think uh, there was one day a week where – and I could be wrong on this, but like you had to put your body weight on the bar and get to 50 reps in as few sets as possible. And I weighed about 190 at the time, um, but he like gave you a range. So if you weighed from like 180 to 200, put 200 on the bar. And so I had 200 on the bar. Oh my gosh, man, I'm not kidding you. There there were days where I was just flat on my back <laughs> on the floor of OPS, just staring at the ceiling like I cannot move my legs. Like I was getting in the car to drive home and I wasn't sure I was going to be able to move from gas to brake. Um, but I did, I mean, for me, somebody who doesn't have to worry about athletic performance, I'm like, it was fun to push myself in that regard. Um, now I've done other workout programs, one by Christian Thibodeau to put on some, some weight. Um, and I would definitely side with Christian Thibodeau's if I was going to put an athlete through it. Um, so that kind of methodology, I've definitely, uh, you know, moved towards if an athlete needs to put on a couple pounds, but, um, Again, that's, you know, you just uh, experiment with different stuff, find out what you like and what you don't like or what's fun and what's not, and kind of go from there. Yeah, I had another question. Um, in this exercise science field, and we, we mentioned it a couple times um, throughout earlier podcasts, but like, almost every idea that you have, there's going to be people that hate that idea, people that love that idea. Like what, how do you try to go about this field and like swim through the knowledge and pick and choose what you will do or what you like or what you don't like? Because everything you can find a scientific article that proves and disproves it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think that's one of the things you have to be really careful about is you'll see on Twitter people just cherry pick like two sentences from a research study that fits their whatever point they're trying to argue. Um, And I think that's why, you know, I look for people not who necessarily think in the way that I want to think. Like I don't want people to just prove what I'm thinking correct. Um, But I think there is some merit to finding those names in the field who are reputable, um, who have seen good results, who a lot of people kind of gravitate towards um, and then kind of going from there with their stuff. Um, And that can be hard to do because, again, you'll see somebody like Joel Seedman who's out there training Terry Crews and um, I think uh, Chris Carson and – Zach has a glare in his eye now. Go, Joel. <laughs> oh, no. No. <laughs> Man, he's awesome. I love him. His eccentric isometrics are just wonderful. I think it's awesome that you go on one arm with the kettlebell on your toe doing a single arm he contralateral will, he will bicep curl you. to reduce swing with a trap bar <laughs> over on top of your head while you're suspended from the squat rack with freaking bands. I don't know what he oh does. He gosh. will give you 17 pounds of muscle in six weeks. Just, just read the article. Read the article. <laughs> because obviously these professionals haven't had any time to cause their body to adapt to weight training and right. stress and whatnot. So this is all new to them. Yeah. So, But that's the thing. You see a guy who's training NFL players, who's training, you know, Terry Crews, who obviously look at Terry Crews, and you're like, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. And it's like, no, that's not – what he shows is not safe. It's not helpful. It's like – so you just got to find – like there are a lot of people out there who have plenty of followers. And, again, I'll go back to, like, the Instagram, like, you know, all these uh, influencers and things like that who, like, again, look really good, hit the genetic lottery. I'm not saying they don't work hard when they work out, but, like – what other than them looking good, like, tells you that they know what they're doing? And that's where you just got to kind of sift through all that and find those people who, um, you know, again, have much more experience, have trained a lot more people and, you know, just have that, you know, skin in the game. Again, I'll use that catchphrase. It's one of those things like my dad says, he's like, you know, he's like, and I'm not saying that these people are stupid necessarily, but he's like, yeah, it's like if you put a suit on a toad. Like, yeah, the toad might look good, but it's still a toad. So I like, put a bunch of muscle on someone who doesn't know anything. Like, there's a lot of bodybuilders out there that obviously are just jacked. Like, I mean, it, shredded, yoked out of their mind, right? And then if you were to go work out with them, like one of the guys I listened to a podcast, he said he worked out with this high-level bodybuilder, and he was looking forward to, like, hearing some things he has to say, and he they were talking during the workout, and the guy was like, yeah, man, honestly, I don't know exactly why I do what I do. It's what my coach tells me to do. I know how it feels, and I know what it is. I know kind of what it's hitting. Like, I know it's hitting my, my peck, but, like, I don't know why or what it is doing. Like, just because you look the part doesn't mean you can – like, I mean, if you walk, you, you don't walk the walk and you don't talk the talk. I mean, you can talk it, but you, you don't always walk it. Well, that's why I have to laugh um, when ESPN does their 30 for 30s. Um, the one on Bo Jackson is one of my absolute favorites – um, and this is nothing against Bo Jackson, but just kind of feeding into what we're talking about here. Um, somebody went over to his house when he was playing for the Royals and playing for the Raiders, and they went down into his basement. He had this state-of-the-art weight room down there. And I can't remember who it was, but somebody was like, Bo, like, these weights look like they've never been used. And he's like, well, yeah, I don't I don't use them. I don't lift weights. They're like, like you don't work out at all? He's like, no. 
it's like, okay, this is arguably the greatest athlete ever of all time. And this guy doesn't touch a thing. So again, it goes back to, I mean, there are just some people who have God-given abilities and God-given body composition that's just better than yours. And that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that they necessarily know what they're doing to get that. Sometimes yeah. there are just things that you kind of luck into. Yeah. And those, those people are like, yeah, I'm better than you. Second. It. It's like hundred percent <laughs> you are. Like I have, I cannot yeah, argue with you. No, I got nothing. <laughs> I have to work so hard to be mediocre. <laughs> that's it's, what I always, I, I actually told the cross country that, uh, cross country team that this year, um, because, you know, another thing about lifting weights is, you know, people are like, well, well I don't I don't want to get bulky. You know, I don't want to. And I'm like, I straight up told every team this year, I was like, I eat about 4,000, 4,500 calories a day to look this average. <laughs> like, like, I promise you, you who weigh 120 pounds and you probably eat 800 calories a day and then you go run 15 miles at practice, I promise you, you're not going to gain weight here. I feel like a lot of runners have this, like, bad stigma that lifting weights makes you slow. And... I mean, it's NAI, but the thing is, like, when you get NAIA track and field or any sort of track and field, like, numbers are what's what matters. And I got a buddy who runs over at Huntington, and he has D1 numbers, won nationals in 4 by 4 last year. So he won the NAI, the big championship. I mean, he got a jacket and everything. Man. And he's one of the only runners that I know that consistently lifts weights and is very diligent in that. And so, obviously, like, maybe sometimes running, I mean, lifting weights would make you slow, but it really all depends on how you do it. So, I mean, if people can get these stigmas out of their head, and, like, especially like with the cross-country runners, like, hey, eat more. Like, right. you don't need to be 108 pounds soaking wet with a super strict diet. Like, the amount of miles you run outweighs any sort of diet that you're ever going to eat. Yeah. And I think that, again, speaking to... The cross country team, who I do want to give a ton of credit to, like they're one of my absolute hardest working teams, um, and they have really, you know, taken everything I've given them in the weight room and, and ran with it. No pun intended. Um, but like for them, I mean, I, I can't imagine a situation where I would ever look at a cross country kid like, okay, we need to put fifteen pounds on you. No, like we're here lifting for durability because they put more mileage on their bodies than any other athlete, at least of the you know, sports that we have here on campus. They put more mileage on their bodies than most college kids' cars. Yes. Yeah, literally they do. And so it's like, no, I'm not trying to to beef you up. I'm trying to make sure that your body can physically handle everything that you're doing. Because the other thing about cross-country runners, I mean, they're insane because they're literally in season nine months out of the year. And then they might take a week off when they go home and then they just go run all summer. So like they are literally in season all year round. Your body has to be able to handle that workload. And so... No, I'm never going to give you a goal of like, hey, I need you to squat this much. I need you to weigh this much. No, I just need you to be a quality mover where we have some progressive overload and we slowly but surely get stronger because, again, I mean, the demands you put on your body are, I mean, they're tough and they're tougher than any other athlete that I can think of just because of the repetitive nature of that and the, I mean, the the easiness with which they could break down. I mean, it's, it's incredible. So, I mean, it makes their sport even more respectable. I mean, I promise you, you'll never find me running. I mean, shoot, you'll never find me running one mile, let alone like 15 in a day, but you'll never find me running. Period. Period. <laughs> we I'll are throw that the out same. there. <laughs> Obviously we all like to run except for Colton. Colton's a loser. I actually have a, uh, 
24-hour team endurance race coming up this weekend in Tennessee. So me and three other guys will be running for 24 hours straight. I tell you what, man, I'll be Tennessee. I'll be praying for you and I'll be cheering for you from afar. If you I will, look at be joining you. If you look in the DSM-5, that's actually like a characteristic of a psychopath. <laughs> it's actually crazy. When I was in abnormal psychology, they talked about freaks like you. <laughs> freaks like me. No, everyone's like, "Are you stupid?" Or no, they'll, they'll like tell me something blah 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 and I'm like They'll be like, why, why, why would you do that? Be like, I'm not, I'm not stupid. I'm just crazy. Like, yeah, there's, there's like I'm better than you. I mean, <laughs> hey, if the end of the world's coming. I'd rather be mean than you. That's all I'm saying. There you, straight. Go. you can run longer. There you go. <laughs> hey, you don't, you don't have to run fast. You just have to run faster than the slowest person. There you exactly. go. Yeah, I mean, we're gonna wrap it up here. For those of you guys that have listened, um, if you didn't hear the names that Nate said earlier um, for his top three guys, then you probably should go look them up. Um, they're not super well known for people just getting into the exercise science. I mean, you're probably hearing about the fitness influencers on Instagram, but those are the guys that are going to take you into the nitty gritty and actually teach you what you need to learn. So if you don't know those names, look them up. Um, Nate, thank you so much for being on this podcast. You obviously have had so much, uh, beneficial information to give us. And especially for the people listening, what you've had to say has been super awesome. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me. Um, I love, again, I don't really have coworkers over at OPS, um, so the chance to sit down and really talk about this stuff in the field that is, has done a lot for me and has meant a lot for me, um, I just really appreciate that opportunity. It was good talking to you guys. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Well, this is the P3 Podcast. Thank you for listening.